Well, certainly, uh, the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday mornings as we gather together as the church is vital uh, for our individual lives as Christians and for our life as a church. At the same time, you need to be reading the Bible daily. You know, think about the food that we eat uh, throughout the week. You know, we generally eat two or three meals a day, seven days a week. You know, we wouldn't even think of only having one meal for the whole week. How much more that should be the case for us spiritually with the Word of God. Jesus said to the devil, quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, that this is the very Word of God. That God's Word is our daily bread. This food is all the more important than our physical food. We know the importance of physical food. We will starve without it. We will starve spiritually without the Word of God. And so it's important what we're doing right now and coming together to hear the Word of God expounded. And it is important that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we continue to be in the Word of God um, individually, a feeding upon the Holy Scriptures. Now, we do, as a church, give away Bibles. If you do not have your own copy of the Bible, I do want to make you aware that in the foyer, in the area of literature that we're giving away, uh, there are Bibles. We have English Bibles, we have Spanish Bibles, uh, we have Bibles in some other languages as well. Those are available to you, either to give away to others or for you to use. Uh, so if you do not have a Bible, uh, feel free to take one of those Bibles on your way out. A study Bible is useful as we seek to understand the Scriptures. Study Bibles have explanatory notes uh, for a good number of the verses. They have introductions to the different books. They have useful resources, including maps and charts and so forth, concordance. Uh, study Bibles are useful. And we have several different study Bibles in the library. And you are welcome to check out uh, of the library one of the study Bibles and hold on to it as long as you would like to. Um, we want you to get familiar with study Bibles. Um, I'd recommend purchasing one, uh, but you may want to first borrow one and see which one uh, will, will really meet uh, your need well. Uh, we are starting this morning an, expo an expository journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know how long it will take us. We'll be going verse by verse. I would guess it will take us about two years or so. It's worth the time to study closely and that we might then apply it deeply to our lives. This morning I want to begin setting first, by setting 1 Corinthians in the context of the rest of Scripture. In Sunday mornings we, we typically zero down on just a few verses. It's important that we, as we do so we keep in mind the big picture. And so while you hold on to 1 Corinthians, I want you to turn back to the table of contents. Turn back to the table of contents in your Bible. In the table of contents, you will find the order of the books as they are found in the Bible. They are put into a specific order. Now the order is not inspired by the Spirit of God. In church history, some other orders of the books have been used, but they are put into a, 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 a special order, a logical order. And it's very good for the Christian to memorize the order of the books in the Bible so that you know what the books are and also so that you know how they are arranged. Uh, there, as I said, it is, there is an importance of how they relate one to another. And then so that you can easily find a different references as we will cross-reference all throughout our series on 1 Corinthians. As we cross-reference other passages, you'll be able to find those efficiently. Now, as you will notice in the table of contents, the Bible is divided into the Old Testament. That word testament means covenant. The Old Testament or Old Covenant and the New Testament or New Covenant. 
The Old Testament prepared for the coming of Christ. While the New Testament reveals the first coming of Christ with His death, His resurrection, and the significance of this for our lives. And the New Testament promises Christ's return. If you look at the first books of the Old Testament, uh, the first five books were written by Moses, starting with Genesis, going through Deuteronomy. Uh, these, these first five books of the Old Testament record the creation of the universe, man's fall into sin, God's gracious promise to bless Abraham's descendants and to bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. Uh, These books record the multiplication in Egypt of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom the Bible calls the Israelites. Uh, These books record the Lord's redemption of the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage and His covenant that He made with them at Sinai, making them into the nation of Israel. Uh, These books record the Lord's faithfulness in giving Israel uh, the... the, uh, bringing them to the edge of the promised land, bringing them through the wilderness, miraculously providing for them in the wilderness that they might enter into the land of promise. These first five five books record the covenant that the Lord made with Israel, Uh, that covenant that is called in the Bible God's law. Uh, The law of God which was meant to show our need for Christ and to teach Israel how to bring glory to their Redeemer. After the first five books, we have the books Joshua through Esther. And these books give the history of the Lord's dealings with Israel from the time that they entered the promised land uh, through the return from the Babylonian exile. Uh, These historical books record Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord and the Lord's promise of a son of David who will rule in perfect righteousness, justice, and goodness over both Israel and the nations, restoring God's blessing and extending that blessing. Then you find the books Job through Song of Solomon. Uh, These books are poetry, poetry that instructs in godly living and models talking to God. Then you have the, the, the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, The the prophets are largely the word that the Lord spoke to Israel through prophets well after the time of David, rebuking Israel's sin, warning of severe judgment, and promising glorious salvation. Then you have the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record the ministry of Jesus Christ, His death, and His resurrection. The Gospels show that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham and son of David who came to fulfill the Old Covenant and to bless sinners with salvation and eternal life which are received through repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the book of Acts. And Acts records Christ's ascension into heaven, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, and how Christ from heaven began to build His church through His apostles. As the apostles of Christ laid the foundation of the church through the preaching of Christ's word to Jews and to Gentiles. Then you have the books Romans through Jude. These are epistles. That word epistle means a a letter. They are letters that were written by apostles or written by close associates of apostles to churches and to church leaders instructing them about Christ, about God's work of salvation, about the nature of the church, about the life of the church, and about Christ's future return. And this section is where 1 Corinthians that we will be studying is found. 1 Corinthians is an epistle. It is a letter. And then finally, you will find in the table of contents the book of Revelation. The last book in the New Testament, the last book in the Bible, which was written to seven churches. It's a book which reveals what will happen around the time of Christ's return, when God will judge the world. And it reveals what will happen after Christ returns, when He reigns on the earth, when He pronounces eternal judgment, and when God establishes new heavens and a new earth, where God's redeemed ones will dwell with Him forever. This is the big picture in which 1 Corinthians fits. 
that we are going to focus upon uh, for as long as it takes to study it carefully. Of all the epistles, from Romans all the way through Jude, 1 Corinthians is one of the most substantial. It is about the application of doctrine, especially the application of the gospel to life, especially the application of it to life in the church. Arguably, there is more teaching in 1 Corinthians on the church than in any other epistle. It is these unique characteristics of the book that have moved me to select 1 Corinthians for our next series, along with the fact that this epistle has not been taught in any substantial way uh, during the 17 years that I have been here. I have preached from several different passages in Corinthians, but only from a few. Uh, So it is well time for us to study this great epistle. This morning, I want to whet your appetite and to prepare you for the journey that we will take going through this book uh, verse by verse. Today we will look at the first verse and a half along with background of the epistle. Uh, Please look with me in the book of 1 Corinthians at chapter 1. I'm going to read through us verses 1 through 2a. Please stand in honor of the word of God if you are able. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. This morning we are going to look, first of all, at the human author of this epistle. Second, uh, we will see the original recipients of this epistle. And thirdly, the purpose of this epistle. First of all, the human author. Now, when we're thinking about the human author, we have to keep in mind that there's actually a dual authorship of every book in the Bible. There is a human author that God selected uh, through whom he has given us uh, this portion of Scripture. Uh, In the case of 1 Corinthians, the human author identifies himself as Paul, the apostle. But there's always the even the more important author, and that is God himself. As 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is the word of God. And as 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, tells us that the writers of scripture, they wrote as the Holy Spirit carried them along. Uh, so the Lord prepared the Apostle Paul uh, to write this, as the Lord gave him a specific background Um, The Lord prepared him with a certain education um, and so forth. The Lord guided everything that he wrote so that he wrote exactly what God intended. Now it comes to us through Paul's unique personality. Paul has a different personality than the Apostle John, a different writing style than the Apostle John and the other writers of the Bible. You see see the the, the humanity um, of the author. But at the same time, You you see the divine author. This reads as God's word. This does not read as the mere word of man. So let us talk about the human author of this epistle. He identifies himself as Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle literally means a sent one, a person who has been sent. And this word apostle speaks of a person who has been sent as an official representative. Paul identifies himself as specifically an apostle of Jesus Christ. Meaning that Paul was personally chosen by Christ Jesus and personally sent by Christ Jesus as one of his official authoritative representatives. The other apostles whom Christ chose and sent were the eleven. You read in the Gospels of how Jesus chose twelve, though he knew one of them was a devil, Judas Iscariot, who in God's sovereign plan would betray Jesus. Uh, You have the 11 apostles, so I'm subtracting Judas, 
and you have Matthias, who in Acts chapter 1, um, in God's sovereignty, uh, as Christ so led the church, uh, was selected to replace Judas. And then you have the apostle Paul. Now, one part of being Christ's apostle was being a witness of Christ's resurrection, uh, which Paul was. I want you to turn in 1 Corinthians to chapter 9, verse 1. Paul indicates this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul asks rhetorically, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And the answers to all those questions are affirmative. Paul was an apostle, and he did see Jesus our Lord. It's significant that he mentions that right after mentioning his apostleship, uh, because that was absolutely necessary for an apostle to be a witness uh, of the resurrected Christ. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3, Paul will tell us a little bit more about uh, seeing the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, so it would be to the twelve as a group, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, that would be again, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The book of Acts, chapter 9, records how Paul, who was also called Saul, was on his way to Damascus to arrest followers of Jesus and to bring them back to Jerusalem for them to stand trial. And on, as he was on his way to Damascus as an enemy of the believers in Jesus Christ, an enemy of the disciples of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul. Paul saw Jesus Christ in his glory. Not in his humble state as a servant when he came here and gave up his life as a ransom for many but in his post-resurrection glory. Paul saw the brilliance of the glory of Christ. And he was blinded. And he heard the voice of the resurrected Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And persecuting the followers of Jesus whom Paul was considering to be dead and buried and to be done away with, that one says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In persecuting my disciples, you are persecuting me. I'm alive. I am the promised Messiah whom you hate whose followers you've been trying to, to even put to death. And the resurrected Christ appointed Paul there to be his apostle. Paul refers back to that here in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul, as an apostle, when he proclaimed the resurrection of Christ, which was at the heart of the gospel message, he was proclaiming the gospel as a witness to the resurrection. He saw with his own eyes that Jesus of Nazareth was no longer in the grave, 
but he was alive in an exalted, glorified state. So that was part of being an apostle. There, there were more that, people than the apostles who saw the risen Christ, who were witnesses to the resurrection, uh, but it was necessary for all the apostles to be witnesses. So being a witness did, did not make one an apostle, but it was a requirement, it was a necessity that if one was to be an apostle, they had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. A second part of being Christ's apostle was speaking authoritatively the word of Christ, including the gospel of Christ. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Remember that word apostle means one who is sent. An apostle of Christ is one who was officially sent by Christ as his representative. Here, 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The apostles were sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to authoritatively preach the gospel, to authoritatively preach the good news, the word of Christ, which centers on Christ's death upon the cross for our sins and his victorious resurrection. He spoke the gospel authoritatively. If, 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 we, if we hold out the scriptures, the words we speak are authoritative because they are the words of scripture. Paul spoke authoritatively. The New Testament had not been written yet. But as Christ's official representative, he spoke authoritatively the word of Christ. He spoke authoritatively the gospel of Christ. So that was part of being an apostle. So far we have the apostles were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Secondly, uh, they, they were sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel message and then the, the, a third part of being Christ's apostle was performing the miraculous signs of an apostle. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And look at verse 12. Verse 12. Paul writes here, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul is talking about his ministry in Corinth. And he's saying that when he was there as an apostle, preaching the gospel, planting the church, the signs of a true apostle were performed among them as by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul performed signs, wonders, and mighty works. And we read in the book of Acts of some of the, the signs that the Apostle Paul performed, including raising someone from the dead, healing people, and so forth. Performing the same sorts of signs that Jesus Christ performed. Signs authenticated the messenger. The signs that Jesus Christ performed authenticated him as having come from God, as speaking the word of God. And so with the apostles, as they performed signs and wonders, they authenticated the message of the apostles. They, they showed the authority of the apostles to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this, being witnesses to Christ's resurrection authoritatively proclaiming the gospel of Christ and performing the signs of an apostle. All of this was part of the apostles' overarching responsibility of working in the founding and the forming of the church. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and their close associates, the New Testament prophets. The apostles were laying the foundation of the church as they were proclaiming the word of Christ authoritatively. So the apostles 
their, their, their work was the founding and forming of the church in this period of time when the New Testament was being given to us. Uh, Paul says in our text, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul identifies himself as Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Though Paul was not part of the original 12 apostles, Paul did not choose to be an apostle. He says he has been called by the will of God to be an apostle. He didn't choose to be an apostle. He didn't apply for the office of apostle. He was not nominated for the office by human authorities. He was not nominated by the church. Rather, he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. He was captured and constrained by God the Father's sovereign calling through the risen Christ when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He was called, sovereignly, authoritatively called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's point here in verse 1 is that he is writing this letter as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul has a right to speak authoritatively on the subjects that are found in this epistle. Now, when Paul identifies himself as the human author of this epistle, he says, and our brother Sosthenes, meaning that brother Sosthenes was with Paul when he wrote and was in agreement with what Paul wrote. Now, Acts chapter 18 speaks of a Sosthenes in Corinth, who was the ruler of the synagogue, who was an unbeliever, who took Paul to court. And it is possible uh, that that Sosthenes was saved and is the same Sosthenes referred to here uh, at the beginning of the letter. Uh, But that would just be speculation. We don't really know. Um, We don't have enough information to know, is this the same Sosthenes or is this a different Sosthenes? So we really don't know for sure anything about this Sosthenes, other than he's a brother in Christ, and he was together with the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's a co-laborer with Paul, and uh, he's ministering with Paul, and uh, he's there, and he certainly is in agreement with the things that Paul is writing here. Now, to whom did the Apostle write this letter? Who were the original recipients? Uh, Let's continue on in our text. Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Corinth was the largest and wealthiest city in Greece. This was because Corinth was on the I'm sorry, this was because Corinth was one of the major commercial hubs of the Mediterranean. The city of Corinth was located on what's called an isthmus. An isthmus is a, a narrow strip of land that connects two larger bodies of land. Corinth was located on an isthmus that connected northern and southern Greece. So all traffic between the two halves of Greece Greece had to go through the area of Corinth. Additionally, to the west of Corinth and to the east were two major harbors. The harbor to the west connected to the Adriatic Sea, and across this sea was Italy and Rome, the capital of the empire. And the harbor to the east of Corinth connected to the Aegean Sea, and across the Aegean Sea was the large city Ephesus and the rest of Asia Minor. Now when goods were transported between Rome and the eastern provinces, it was preferable for a ship to take them to one of these two harbors next to Corinth. It was preferable for a ship to take the, the goods to one of these harbors, for them to, the goods to then be transported across that narrow isthmus, which is about four miles wide, and for the goods then to be trans, uh, loaded onto a ship at the other harbor and taken from that harbor to their destination. Why was this? Uh, it was dangerous for ships to sail around the, the south of Greece. It also took time. It was more efficient, it was safer uh, to bring the goods to one of these harbors next to Corinth, transport the goods, or even small ships uh, were sometimes pulled on a track from one harbor to the other across that isthmus. 
a much better way to transport goods from Rome to the eastern provinces, or from the eastern provinces to Rome. You would go through Corinth. So Corinth was at a great crossroads. A crossroads for land traffic, north and south, and also for uh, goods that were being transported by ship between east and west. Now being a major seaport where money flowed freely, sexual sin abounded in Corinth. In its earlier history, Corinth gained such a reputation for sexual vice that the Greek writer Aristophanes coined the verb Corinthiazo, meaning to act like a Corinthian, meaning to commit fornication. So committing fornication was called acting like a Corinthian because Corinth was known for the sexual sin that occurred there. On the highest point of the city stood the temple of Aphrodite, or the, the Roman name for Aphrodite, Venus, the goddess of love and beauty. A large number of female religious prostitutes lived in the temple of Aphrodite. Illicit sex abounded in the name of worshiping Aphrodite. Corinth was so known for its prostitutes that the term Corinthian girl came to mean a prostitute. And with sexual sin came venereal disease, yet sexual perversion continued in the city without restraint. People were attracted to Corinth by its financial opportunities. They were attracted to Corinth by its sexual opportunities. And they were attracted to Corinth by its athletics. Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games, named after that isthmus uh, on which Corinth was located. They, ho they hosted the Isthmian Games once every other year, which were held in a giant stadium, and these games were only surpassed by the Olympic Games, the second greatest athletic games in the empire. The Corinth of Paul's day was built just over 100 years before Paul arrived. It was built by Julius Caesar, as a Roman colony. Uh, Julius Caesar settled many people from the city of Rome here in Corinth. And Corinth was used by Rome to promote Roman ideology, to promote Roman culture in that part of the empire. And this Roman city quickly became a melting pot for people from all over the Roman Empire. In this city, religious expression was as diverse as its population. There were many temples in Corinth for various gods and goddesses. Most people tried to accommodate all the gods and goddesses into their religious practices, believing that the more gods they appeased and had on their side, the better. In one papyrus fragment that has been found in the ancient city, the writer said, quote, I pray to all gods. And an inscription found in the city announced, quote, We magnify every god. Now, the most important religious influence in Corinth was the imperial cult, meaning the worship of the empire and of its emperors. People of wealth and influence in the city faced enormous social pressure to conform to the polytheistic religious expectations, especially those related to the imperial cult, if they were to advance or to preserve their place in society. In the society, Christians increasingly became labeled as haters of mankind because Christians refused to join in the worship and sacrificial meals offered to the various gods. Because Christians refused to join in the city's idolatrous festivals that were meant to stir up local pride. Because Christians refused to help polish the city's image as, a, as being loyal to the emperor by taking part in the imperial cults. Christians could not do these things. They had one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. They couldn't say, Caesar is Lord. Since the gods were deemed to be the ones who preserved the state and social order, to reject them was believed to open up the city to divine disfavor and catastrophe. And so you can see how Christians in that society would be labeled as haters of mankind. Because they didn't worship the gods. They didn't worship the emperor. They 
supposedly brought the disfavor of the gods and goddesses upon the city. Now, putting all this together about Corinth, thinking of it as being the largest, wealthiest city, a city where people would go in order to get rich, uh, seeing this as a, as a city that was known for its sexual sin, for its prostitution, and so forth. Knowing that this was a, a pluralistic society, a polytheistic society. Putting this all together, Corinth was at once the New York, San Francisco, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. And it was to this city that the Apostle Paul took the gospel. During his second missionary journey, as recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 18. Please turn with me to Acts 18. The book of Acts was written by Luke, uh, who was a fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was present with Paul and some of the things that Paul uh, uh, that uh, Luke records here. Other things is based on the eyewitness testimony that was given to Dr. Luke. Luke 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So here we have uh, Paul has been preaching in the synagogue. Uh, the Jews in the synagogue while some of them would have believed, um, others uh, pushed Paul out of the synagogue. So then, there is this man, Titius Justus. He's called a worshiper of God. He's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile who, living next to the synagogue, uh, perhaps he had attended services at the synagogue, perhaps he had heard the Apostle Paul there. Evidently, he has been saved under Paul's ministry, and he opens up his home now to, to Paul to use as a place to continue to preach. So verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Here's the beginning of the church in Corinth. Uh, this probably occurred in the year AD 50. And this is the first time for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to Corinth. Why do I say that? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, to the Corinthians, For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Paul and his fellow missionaries were the first to come to Corinth with the gospel of Christ. Further, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Later on, others came and they, they built on that foundation. Paul laid the foundation of the church in Corinth. He was the first to bring the gospel to them. Let's continue in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, that's the Lord Jesus, said to him one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
Now, knowing what Corinth was like, you can imagine the opposition that Paul faced, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he proclaimed the one true God and proclaimed Jesus as the one true Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4-6, through Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul proclaimed those truths in Corinth of the one true God and of the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. You can imagine the opposition that he faced from Jews and from Gentiles. You can imagine the resistance that he faced as he proclaimed the word of the cross to this city that was pagan, polytheistic, sensual, lewd, materialistic, and pluralistic, and the city that pushed the imperial cult. Here in our text, the Lord Jesus says to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Christ was saying here that he has many Corinthians who belong to him, but have yet to hear of him and believe in him. Corinthians whom the Father gave Christ before the foundation of the world to redeem. Corinthians whom Christ redeemed at the cross, securing their salvation. Corinthians whose conversion was certain to occur, because they were Christ's. Let's go on to verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and six months. Now that's not typical for Paul's first and second missionary journeys. Typically he was in a place for a relatively short period of time. Persecution would arise and, and he would be driven out and he would go on to another city. But here... Though there is reason to fear, there is danger, there is opposition, there is resistance. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he stays you here a year and six months. Ministering the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Building up those who believe. As Paul proclaimed and taught the word of God in Corinth, he was attacking the gates of hell. He was attacking the hold that Satan had on this city. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At least one year and six months, Paul proclaimed the gospel in this city that before he came had never heard the gospel of Christ. What did God do in the lives of individual Corinthians while Paul proclaimed the gospel of grace? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 9. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's how the church in Corinth was started. The first members of the church of Corinth were former, former fornicators, former homosexuals, former idolaters, former swindlers, and so forth. But they were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they no longer were what they once were. They were washed with the blood of Christ. They were sanctified by the grace of God, set apart from sin unto God for His service. They were justified in the name of Jesus Christ, declared righteous, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. This is the power of the gospel. You once were, but no longer, because you have been washed, sanctified, justified. You were this, but you have been saved. That's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Christ. That's the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what God did through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, in Corinth, starting, establishing, planting this church. Let's look again at how Paul addresses this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back to the beginning of the epistle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. That word church is translated from the Greek word ekklesia. The whole New Testament was originally written in Greek and it has been translated from Greek into English for us. It's ekklesia. It literally means assembly. And Paul here distinguishes this assembly from all other assemblies that might gather in Corinth as the assembly that belongs to God. The church of God that is in Corinth. The church that belongs to God in a unique way. Paul brings this out in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, how the church of God is the, the church that belongs to God. He brings this out in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's how the church became the church of God. That's why the church belongs to God. This is the sense in which the church belongs to him. God has obtained the church with his own blood. Now, that's a striking statement. God doesn't have blood, but his son became flesh, and his son shed his blood as the Father sent His Son into the world to become man and to lay down His life as the ransom for many. God obtained the church with the precious blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, this is the church of God. It's His church. It belongs to Him. He has obtained it by redemption. It belongs to Him by redemption. There's a sense in which everything belongs to God because God is the sovereign ruler over all. He's the creator of all. But this, this church belonged to God in a, a second way, a greater way. It belongs to Him by redemption. We see here that the church is not a man-made organization created to preserve, practice, and spread particular religious traditions. 
The church is not a society of like-minded persons governed by human aspirations and values. No, the church is an assembly created by God's gracious redeeming work through His Son, governed by God and existing for the glory of God. And because the church belongs to God, I generally avoid saying things like, my church, or John MacArthur's church, etc., If what I mean by my church is the church to which I belong, those words my church are not wrong. If what I mean by John MacArthur's church is the church which John MacArthur pastors, those words are not wrong. But it is so important that that we be mindful that the church belongs to God, not to any man or group of people, that I would rather use words that that are more precise than that. CFC is not Pastor Steve's church. Neither is it our church in the sense of belonging to us. Like the church in Corinth, CFC is the church of God. Now, why does Paul write this letter to the church of God in Corinth? What is the purpose of this epistle? To understand the purpose, we need to understand what occasioned the letter and what the letter says. So what happened between the time when Paul left this new church in Acts 18 and the time that he wrote this letter? We'll turn back to Acts 18. Acts 18. Let's pick up the narrative at verse 24. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, Alexandria was in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he was somewhat deficient in his understanding of New Testament truths. He, he, He knew... The, the, the basic truths of who Jesus is and how he fulfilled the Old Testament, but there were more things for him to, to learn. So he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Remember, Priscilla and Aquila uh, were met by the Apostle Paul in Corinth. It would appear that they were saved while they were in Corinth under Paul's ministry. Uh, now, Apollos and Aquila have, I'm sorry, um, Priscilla and Aquila have come to Ephesus. Apollos comes to Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him. Verse 26, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's the province of which Corinth was the capital. When he wished to cross to Achaia, to go across that Aegean Sea from Ephesus to Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, that would be in Achaia, the capital of which is Corinth, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So, Paul has left Corinth. Um, He has has concluded his second missionary journey. He went to Jerusalem, um, Antioch. Uh, He begins his, his third journey. Meanwhile, Apollos received some training from Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then he's sent from the church in Ephesus to the church in Corinth. And there in Corinth, uh, he helps the believers in Corinth. As, as he, as it's put in verse 28, he shows by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. As he leads the church in engaging unbelieving Jews with the gospel. So Apollos had a ministry in Corinth following the apostle Paul where he's building on the foundation that Paul had laid. Now, we read in chapter 19 
that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed to the inland country and he came back to the city of Ephesus. Now, while Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote an uninspired letter to the church in Corinth. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which mentions this uninspired letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter... It would be a previous letter that he sent to Corinth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul refers to a previous letter that he sent to Corinth uh, that was at least partly misunderstood, that now he's seeking to clarify. Now this would have been an uninspired letter. 1 Corinthians is inspired. It is the Word of God. The previous letter would have been uninspired. He would have written the previous letter to Corinth with apostolic authority, but it was not inspired. How do I know it was not inspired? If it was inspired, God would have preserved it for us. If it was the Word of God, if it was Scripture, it would have been meant for believers all, at all times moving forward into the future. It would have been preserved. So it was an uninspired letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians with his apostolic authority. Now sometime after sending the uninspired letter, Paul received communication from the church and from its members. In fact, the church sent a letter to Paul. Go forward to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the church wrote to Paul with some questions, with some matters that they wanted him to uh, clarify or provide direction on. They've written him a letter with certain issues that they've brought up. In addition to this letter that Paul received from the church in Corinth, he received a visit from three members of the church. That's mentioned in chapter 16. So turn over to chapter 16, looking at verse 17. Chapter 16, verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such Men. They've made up for your absence. Paul didn't like being away from this church that he had planted, that, that he loved, that he cared for, that he wanted to shepherd as much as he could. But those who came to him from Corinth, uh, they made up for the absence of the congregation. And certainly these individuals would have shared with Paul what was going on in the church. They may have carried the letter that Paul received from them. We don't know. Earlier, Paul would have heard from Apollos about what was going on in the church. If you look in the same chapter at verse 12, chapter 16, verse 12, Paul mentions Apollos. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So Apollos didn't stay too long in Corinth. He came back to Ephesus. And now Paul has been urging him to go again to Corinth. When he would have returned from Corinth, he would have shared with Paul what the Lord was doing, what the church was going through, what their needs were. In addition to this, uh, Paul received a report from people in the church whom he calls Chloe's people. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So this group of members in the church have come to Paul, another group of people, sharing with him what's going on in the, the church and reporting some concerns about quarreling amongst the brothers there. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he is still in Ephesus. If you look still in chapter 16 at verse 5, verse 5, Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, 
for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul was in the middle uh, of major ministry in Ephesus. And while he wanted to go to Corinth, he could not at the time go there, so he writes this letter. He says he will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. As Paul received the various communications from the Corinthian church, he saw that their big problem was not being persecuted by the world, but having the world in them. Although they were the church of God in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery. And this is what 1 Corinthians seeks to do to perform radical surgery on the Corinthian believers. In this epistle, the Apostle authoritatively addresses at least 11 different problems in the church, 10 of which are behavioral, one of which is doctrinal. But he addresses all of the problems with gospel truth. The problems concern divisions in the church and divisions against Paul. They concern sexual immorality, lawsuits against believers, issues related to marriage, divorce, and singleness, food offered to idols, the relationship between men and women in the worship service, divisions at the Lord's Supper, the use of spiritual gifts in public worship, and the future resurrection of believers. Paul addresses all of the concerns, all of the problems uh, with doctrine, especially with the gospel of Christ crucified and raised. This epistle is a corrective epistle that calls us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to a life of spirit-empowered unity, humility, holiness, edification, and love in the church of God, the church which God obtained with His own blood. I challenge each of you in the week ahead to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It's 16 chapters, so you could do two or three chapters a day and to get through the whole book in a week. It's really important that before we look at it in detail, uh, you have clearly in your mind the big picture of the book. I've helped you with some of that today, um, but what I've done today is no substitute for you reading through the book as a whole. Read through the book this week. Look for the main ideas. Look for the big picture. And look for two specific things. First of all, this week, as you read through 1 Corinthians, look to see what does this book say about the significance of Christ's death and resurrection? What does this book say about the significance of Christ's death and resurrection? And secondly, look for this. How is the gospel to impact our lives individually and as as a church body? How is the gospel to impact our lives individually and as a church body? And as you read through this book this week, the Spirit will use this book in your life, and will also prepare you for studying the book more closely. May the Lord be glorified greatly in the next two years or whatever it takes to go through this book. May He be glorified as He uses this book in our hearts, in our lives individually, and as a church. As we come face to face with the death of Christ for our sins, as we come face to face with the resurrection of Christ and all that this means for our lives as believers and our life as the church of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we were no different from the Corinthians before you sent Paul to them with the gospel. We too were dead in trespasses and sins. We too were rebels against you. 
whether we were religious rebels like the, the Jews in the synagogue, or we were secular rebels uh, like the, the, the Romans, the, the Greeks, there in Corinth. Lord, we needed your grace just as much as the Corinthians needed your grace. And you have poured out your grace and mercy in our lives. As there at the cross, you redeemed us with the precious blood of your Son. Thank you for your words to the Apostle Paul when he was in Corinth. Do not fear. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I have many in this city. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign in salvation. That all whom the Father gave you to redeem, you redeem. That not a single one is lost. That by your Spirit, you bring all to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is no substitute for proclaiming the gospel. It was through the hearing of the gospel of Christ that those who belonged to Christ believed and were saved. So Lord, may we be people of the gospel. May we be people who proclaim the gospel. May we be people who know the gospel, people who apply the gospel to our lives, individually, as a church, for your glory. Oh Lord, we, we ask for your help in this series that we are beginning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.